Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, is the impairment of cognition, psychological health, or physical function that remains in the wake of critical illness. Current reports indicate up to 40% of ICU survivors experience PICS symptoms, all of which persist beyond discharge from the acute care setting. Unfortunately, PICS is often undiagnosed and inadequately treated. Dr. Shannon Pache, a critical care pharmacist, reviews the evidence regarding PICS management and describes Mayo Clinic's experience of creating an interdisciplinary team to address this care gap. So as we get started on today's topic, I want to take a quick step back and I want us to think, to put ourselves in a particular situation. Imagine that you wake up and you find yourself in an intensive care unit. Despite your best efforts throughout this once in a lifetime pandemic to social distance, wear your mask, do all of those things, you are sick, you have COVID-19, you are short of breath, you feel like you're drowning. You can hardly catch your next breath. And uh, when you look around your room, you're surrounded by all of these people who are running around. Every single one of them is a stranger. They look panicked as you feel panicked. There are monitors, uh, things beeping, lines coming out of you. And uh, to top all of this off, everyone that you love and care about in the world is far away from you. Not a single one of them is at your bedside, able to be in your hospital room during this time. So fast forward a few days and you wake up and find yourself and this time you're in a different room and you feel a lot better. You can breathe, maybe a little bit worse for the wear, weak, kind of some aches and pains, but you know what? You are thankful to be alive. You have made it and things are going to be all right. And so at that point, you're on the floor and you're getting ready to dismiss home. Things are looking good. Well, you're at home for a few weeks and things don't feel as good anymore. You can't go back to work, so your family is struggling because how do you pay your bills when you can't work, but how do you work when you're so weak that you can't get up and to go to your job every day? You have a cabin on a lake and you love water sports and going out to the lake, but you are terrified of water now because all you can think about is the time that when you were sedated in the ICU, you thought you were drowning and you hallucinated that you had fallen off of a ship and you were drowning in the water. So now you are terrified of the sounds of water and being anywhere near water. What do you do at this point? What resources do you reach out for? Is this even normal? Um, what is going on? How do you manage this? So it's this scenario that I want you all to think about as we go through the remainder of this presentation and how, as a patient who struggles with these things, what it is that's available for them within the communities and how it is that we manage these patients. So by the end of today's talk, first we're going to do, describe the incidence and clinical man manifestation of post-intensive care syndrome. We're going to review literature examining the long-term implications of critical illness, as well as discuss current strategies to address care gaps related to post-intensive care syndrome symptoms, recognition, and management. 
So when I'm thinking about a disease state, the first thing that I like to do is go and look at what is the definition of something. If I were to look this up in the dictionary or find a consensus statement, a paper or a guideline, what is post-intensive care syndrome? And so when you do this for post-intensive care syndrome, what you're led to is a 2012 consensus statement that was put out by a group with the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And what they de defined post-intensive care syndrome or PICS as was new or worsened impairments in physical, cognitive, and mental health that remain after critical illness. Gosh, that's pretty broad. There's a, there's a lot of places that you can go with that in terms of what those things mean. And uh, so there's that piece. The other piece is that we're, we're spanning several different domains here. We have mental health and then we have physical health. So how is that that we wrap this up and put this into a picture of what a PICS patient looks like in our minds? And really the answer here is that you don't wrap this up into a present with a bow because this isn't like a patient who has a STEMI where there's a checklist of things that you need to do and a checklist of medications that you need to put them on. Instead, these symptoms are broad and they affect patients differently. None of these patients are textbook because there is no such thing as textbook picks. It affects people differently based off of their baseline experiences and uh, um, what symptoms they exhibit as they move on and transition into life following their ICU stay. So when we look at the physical domain, things that a post-ICU patient may be experiencing are new pain, weakness, muscle loss from being in a bed for potentially weeks at a time. And not to mention that, but many of these patients had pre-existing baseline medical conditions, but they can leave the hospital with new ones. So you were an otherwise healthy 35-year-old that got COVID-19, and now you have long-term lung complications related to the acute respiratory distress syndrome that you experienced while you were in the ICU. That's a lot to cope with from, number one, a physical perspective, but number two, a mental perspective moving forward. When we talk about the cognitive domain, a lot of what we're talking about are problems with executive functions. So those high level things that you used to be able to do before, like managing your finances. Um, if I'm a pharmacist, I'm making decisions related to patient care and providing recommendations. Those are difficult following a stay in the ICU, not to mention aphasia or word finding difficulties. So you're having a conversation and that word's on the tip of your tongue and you just can't quite get it out. And then from a mental health perspective, we talk about there are patients that at baseline could have these problems and then are exacerbated following an ICU stay, but then there are also new things that patients suffer from, like anxiety, depression, PTSD, insomnia, nightmares. When you think about these things and how everyone um, manifests these symptoms differently, it becomes a quite the beast in terms of how it is as healthcare providers we address these problems. And then one other thing that I wanted to mention today, but won't really talk a lot about further, is PICS-F or PICS-Family. In that when we talk about a long-term hospitalization or a time in which an individual that we love is very sick, as family, we are also affected by this. We now worry, or we have new worries related to their health or their finances because I've been out of work taking care of my loved one, or my loved one who is the primary breadwinner in my home is no longer able to work. How do we deal with this. And so now that you have an idea of kind of what the picture is of that patient, I want to take a step back and then look at the patient. So they come to us and they are admitted to our ICU because critical illness strikes. They were fine one day and then are now sick the next. 
from a risk factor risk factor perspective, what puts someone at risk of having post-ICU-related complications? And so there are a, a handful of host factors, and uh, um, those things are neuromuscular disorders, so patients that potentially have some degree of weakness at baseline. Baseline cognitive impairment, uh, baseline psychiatric illness that is at risk of being exacerbated by critical illness. And then um, here is kind of the big uh, red herring and one that is difficult to, to quantify is multiple comorbidities. So patients that come in are, are sick are pretty much every patient without, with the handful of a small subset of patients that we often see as providers in an ICU. So we have the perfect host and then when they're in the ICU, they have all of these iatrogenic things happen to them, right? As providers, there are a small subset of things that we can't control. So the patient had septic shock because they had a UTI. Well, that is beyond my control as a provider, but there are a lot of things that I'm doing to the patient. Some of them are necessary evils in managing their care, and those are things like they needed to be intubated and mechanically ventilated, or we needed to give them medications to manage their sedation. But at the end of the day, these are all things that are happening to the patient that are also beyond the patient's control that they then deal with the long-term implications of. And so I've listed many of them out here. Um, I'd like to highlight pain because untreated pain is something that oftentimes patients recollect going forward. And then delirium. I would be remiss if, as a pharmacist, I didn't talk about delirium and how that affects patients in their recovery following critical illness because as pharmacists, we are so intimately involved in management of delirium within the ICU, and it very clearly has quite significant implications going forward. So delirium affects about 30 to 80% of ICU patients, depending on what reference you look at at any given day. So a good chunk of patients are at some point during their hospitalization delirious. The fascinating thing is, and how PICS and delirium really go hand in hand, are that it is reported that 80% of individuals with PICS report suffering from delirium at some point during their hospitalization. Now that is very profound from my perspective. So as clinicians, if you have a patient that's experiencing delirium, you should really approach them with the fact that they are likely going to suffer from some degree of PICS-related symptoms following their hospitalization. And so I think too as providers, we think about like, oh, well, the patient was a little bit out of it for a while, 24 to 48 hours, they got better, things are fine then we can move on. But really that's not the case. When you look at the data from both a short-term and long-term perspective, delirium is not benign in that it affects a patient's ability to participate in their care. So to, do, to get PT and OT services so that they can get stronger and maintain that muscle tone. It also affects mortality. There's a three-fold increase in six-month mortality in patients that suffer delirium at some point during their hospitalization and then ongoing cognitive impairment. So in 50% of individuals at discharge, and then that continues up to a year following their hospitalization. So at this point, to kind of recap the things that we've talked about, we've talked about our host, we talked about the things that put the host at risk from a, a personal perspective, as well as things that we do to them in the ICU. But I think until you really quantify the percentage of patients that suffer from this, then it, it really doesn't resonate. Because if you, can, if you take care of 1,000 patients and only one patient suffers, then while it's a problem, it's not as big of a problem. 
But when you look at post-ICU syndrome, that's really not the case. So I uh, um, have represented this using the three circles, and you'll hear me throughout the remainder of the presentation reference domains. Um, so there's the cognitive domain, the physical domain, and then that mental health domain. And so I referenced the physical as an example, but really it's just a representative of one domain. So when uh, patients following some degree of ICU hospitalization were surveyed, what they found was they reported the post-ICU symptoms that they were suffering in each of the domains. And it, it was reported that in this patient population, 64% of patients suffered from some type of post-ICU complication in at least one domain. And then when you look at patients that suffered from PICS-type symptoms in two domains, that was 25% of patients. And then there was a small subset of patients that suffered from all three, so 6% of patients. When you look at the patients that you're taking care of, a large percentage of them suffer from these complications. And then individually, the types of things that they're experiencing from a mental health perspective, so 80% of patients that suffer from some mental health-related PICS symptom experience anxiety, 68% experience depression, 46% experience PTSD. And so none of these things are all that surprising. I think to me, it's uh, how they, they overlap right? And that you have a patient who has some type of physical detriment. So I'm unable to go back to work because I'm weak. And that is a problem at first. And so at the point that that patient is surveyed, that's the problem. But if this continues unmanaged for many days, weeks, months at a time, then you find that things start to creep into the other domains. So patients are then more likely to develop anxiety or depression because of the functional deficits that they're experiencing. One of the other big things that we address um, and talk about is return to work. In the paper that was referenced, 70% of patients entering the ICU were employed, but then when you looked following their ICU stay, only 23% maintained that same degree of employment, which is huge in terms of thinking about paying your bills and the day-to-day -day stressors in life. So when is it that patients experience the onset of these symptoms? Is, is there a classic time frame that we talk about in terms of the minute that they are dismissed from the ICU or years down the road? And the answer is, is it exists on a spectrum, right? People suffer from different things at different points in time in their recovery. So I referenced in my patient example, kind of, we, we commonly see that honeymoon period where there, there's a period of time where the patient and their family are just so thankful to be alive that nothing can get them down. I'm glad I'm alive and that is all that matters. And so in that immediate period, they may not be suffering from problems, but as you get into the world and transition back into reality, that is when things start to become more real, when you exit that honeymoon period and are dealing with the day-to-day -day stressors of life. So really, there are kind of early and later phases of post-ICU syndrome that exists on a spectrum, but oftentimes people suffer with these symptoms for years if they go unmanaged. So at this point, we've done we've spent a lot of time kind of talking about doom and gloom things in and all of the the badness that happens following the ICU. So as providers and healthcare workers, our natural inclination is, is well, what do we do about this? How do we manage? And really, it's twofold. So there's a preventative strategy, and then there's a treatment phase. And so from a prevention stage, these are things that should be happening in the ICU and while the patient is inpatient for all patients that are admitted to the hospital and receive some time in the ICU. So it's not just patients that are actively suffering from the illness, but instead all patients that receive time 
in the ICU. So we talk about the ABCDEF bundle, so basic assessing for whether or not the patient needs to be awoken, light and sedation, is the patient delirious, are we managing that appropriately? As pharmacists, again, we would be remiss not to, on a day-to-day -day basis, Make sure that any deliriogenic medication that is on a patient's profile, we are assessing for the appropriateness of that. When we talk about ICU-acquired weakness, you know, is a patient receiving steroids at higher doses, is it appropriate to still be giving those patients steroids at, at higher doses? Because we know that that has uh, a lot of implications in terms of uh, weakness and uh, muscular atrophy. Getting our therapy colleagues involved early on. ICU diaries have quite a bit of literature, so this is where you have somebody from the patient's family or someone from the medical team kind of jotting down notes about what happened to the patient each day because uh, some of the big things that are very traumatic are that you'll talk to these patients after the fact and there will be days that they can't recollect anything that was happening to them. And, and these are even circumstances in which the patient might have been sitting up ha having conversations in bed and, and seemed to be clearly lucid, but in the weeks following, they have no memory of days of their lives. And that's distressing when you think about, you know, not being able to account for a very significant period of your time in your life for which now you're suffering ongoing complications. And then education and awareness. So that is one of the biggest gaps in our current care is making patients understand and letting them know that the things that they're experiencing are normal, right? That's a normalizing these symptoms are a big part in that, that first step to recovery and making them not feel like a freak because they're afraid of the water after they had these intensely scary hallucinations. And so these are things that we should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis from a prevention perspective. And then there's treatment. So that uh, transitioning a patient appropriately to outpatient care, making sure that the discharge summary is thorough and thoroughly accounts what happened to the patient in the ICU so that the PCP is aware of everything that the patient suffered from. Again, education and awareness is key. And then you'll often see Mayo Clinic has an option on our Mayo Clinic Connect page or support groups. So connecting patients that had similar experiences so that they can talk about what they're experiencing and what's going on. And then finally, one of the big focuses of the second half of this presentation are formal post-ICU follow-up clinics. So specialized clinics that recognize this condition that happens to patients and are well-equipped to get the patient through these next phases of recovery. And so here, again, highlighting the problem, I wanted to put my uh, the Venn diagram that I referenced previously into numbers that resonated with us as providers in Mayo Clinic Rochester and why this is a problem that we need to be addressing in terms of formalized post-ICU follow-up. So in 2018, at Mayo Clinic Rochester alone, we had 11,000 patients come through our doors to, into the ICU. 11,000 patients. So Rochester is populated by about 115,000 inhabitants. So 10% of Rochester, figuratively, came through our ICU. When you look at patients that, so 64% of them experienced some, likely some deficit in one of those three domains, that ends up being 7,040 patients. So 7,040 patients with some unmet need. In terms of quantification, Mayo Clinic employs about 7,000 consultants, fellows, and residents under our purview. So quantify that for all of those patients. 
Those that suffer from deficits in two domains are 2,750, and then in all three, 660 patients. So this is a huge gap in care for which all of these patients otherwise are likely not receiving some type of formalized ICU follow-up up until the past year which is kind of, as I alluded to, the second half of this presentation. So Mayo Clinic's solution to addressing that ICU to life transition. About 18 months ago, a group of us came together to form what we've deemed the MCIRP team, or the Mayo Clinic ICU Recovery Program. And so it was a group of multidisciplinary ICU providers, a nurse practitioner, physician, pharmacist, therapy colleagues, and then partners in administration. So it really does take a village um, to get something like this off the ground. And so when we look at what the current atmosphere is in the U.S. for post-ICU clinics, you'll see that there are about 23 formalized to post-ICU clinics that currently exist. And this is based off of um, the most recent data that I was able to obtain. Every single one of these 23 clinics is staffed by an ICU pharmacist. And uh, um, I also think that it's important to highlight that out of those 23, three of them are staffed by Mayo pharmacists. So myself in Rochester, and then Joanna Stallings at Vanderbilt in uh, Nashville. She was one of the first ICU clinics that was founded. And then one of our recent resident graduates, Janelle Point, is at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. And so this is increasingly over the past decade being recognized as a problem. Had you done a similar survey in 2010, 2000 era, you would have seen maybe eight or nine of these clinics. So we've doubled and nearly tripled in numbers over the course of a decade because this problem is being recognized. So when I mentioned we have this Mayo Clinic ICU recovery program, what does that entail? Is it just a clinic where you see patients you know, a handful of patients every month, or what is involved in this. And so what we've really created is a spectrum of services. So starting on the left-hand side of the screen are more traditional patient-to-provider visits. And then the care kind of transition and transitions in terms of the degree of involvement that a provider has to then our remote, remote patient monitoring, which is a virtual service offered by Connected Care here at Mayo, to an app-based program um, known as an interactive care plan all of which exist as options for post-ICU patients. And so the first piece that we're going to talk about now is our structured clinic. And so we created a brick-and-mortar, in-person, traditional clinic in September of 2019. So we're coming up on our year anniversary. We received funding from the Mayo Midwest Clinical Practice Committee as an innovation award. And basically what that did was that funded RFTE so that we could have protected time to see these patients in clinic. The clinic consisted of an ICU provider, an ICU pharmacist, and an ICU occupational therapist. We felt that this was key in management of these patients. Not only, so one of the arguments is, well, why can't you just let the, the primary care provider or an outpatient MTM pharmacist manage these things? And while those providers certainly have a role in ongoing care for the patient, it's key in that we understand what the patients went through. We see these patients on a day-to-day -day basis and what happens to them in the ICU. In fact, many of the patients I took care of in the ICU, and then we transition. So we navigate that gap in care so that we can relate to the patient and manage what's going on. 
our home base was at the pulmonary clinic in Gonda 18, and each patient had a three-hour blocked appointment. We got a lot of like bright, wide eyes when we told patients about this, but the purpose of it was really to be kind of a one-stop shopping pre premise. Rather than have a patient have three separate visits, so in a state of weakness and recovery and probably a million other appointments, they had to, at three different times, come in for an hour with a pharmacist, an hour with a therapy colleague, and then an hour with a provider. We bundled that into one, so the patient stayed in one room, and we all came through. And we could see about six patients um, per clinic day and averaged one clinic day per week. So what this looked like for a patient was from a population perspective, we enrolled patients from all ICUs across to Mayo Clinic Rochester. We required that they were adult age and had one of the following. So ICU length of stay greater than or equal to three days, received some type of embedded PTOT therapy, that these are OR um, pieces, were an ECMO patient or they were referred by another service as somebody that would benefit from our um, services. We enrolled these patients using a registry, so we plugged in these criteria into a report that we ran, and then were able to identify them, provide a list to one of our social worker colleagues to then call the patient, chat with them about the services that we offered, and get them scheduled for a clinic visit. And so the big thing, though, that I wanted to address with this is patient identification is something that is very difficult in this population because it is so ambiguous and that it's not like you just test an A1C, diagnose someone with diabetes, and then you can create a, you can have a diabetes clinic all day long. How is it, though, that you preemptively identify patients while they're still hospitalized that are going to suffer and have ongoing complications following the ICU stay? because we really know that early intervention is key. We want to, during those early phases of recovery, connect them with the services that they need so that they're not still struggling with these problems years down the road. Currently, we, we are relying on known risk factors, so patients with multiple comorbidities, those that had that healthy dose of ICU stay, so they were in the ICU for three days or longer. We really largely use that as a surrogate, um, thinking that the more ill patients are the ones that we're likely targeting. This is an imperfect system, though, because we don't want to avoid missed opportunities. So that patient that was kind of on the borderline for needing our services that wasn't enrolled in our clinic. But then you don't want to enroll patients that are perfectly fine because they're taking up space in your clinic that they don't, um, that could be utilized for different patients. So that is something that we continue to refine and struggle with, and that is not just unique to Mayo Clinic Rochester. It's a problem uh, throughout the post-ICU follow-up community. So back to our clinic appointment. With this, the patient arrived at clinic and then they individually saw each of the providers and following that visit, the providers came together to create an individualized recovery plan. So a plan that was specific to what the patient was currently suffering from and then help them in their recovery. Things were going great. We were seeing patients. We, in a, in a period of a month, had a, a physical clinic space in 2019 and had seen um, over 30 patients in four months in a brand new clinic. But then, of course, like everything else, COVID-19 hit. 
the world stopped and how we did things and how we managed things kind of came to a halt. So what we did was a complete 360 in figuring out how we take this virtual visit where we have therapy assessments and all of these things in a physical space and then turn that virtual. You can hardly ask a patient to stay on a, on a phone line with you for three hours, nor as a provider do I wanna be on the phone with you for three hours. So what we did was we conferenced to all three providers at one time onto the phone, and then we called the patient at home and were able to adjust our practices so that we were doing screenings over the phone and able to connect them with services in their local community. So when we look at what our virtual visit offered relative to the brick and mortar clinic, the team structure was the same, the patients that we were seeing were the same, and the overall purpose of the clinic and the time we were spending in clinic was the same. What was different was that the visit was now one hour in length. We found that with that three hour visit where we were each individually seeing the patients, there was a lot of inefficiencies, right? Because the patient was having to tell their story three different times over the course of a three hour period. And so instead, when we were all on the phone and we were all able to listen to the provider conduct a thorough history over the phone, we could all listen to that and we could take that information and utilize that in our individual assessments as opposed to having the patient tell the provider story, the provider have to recap that to us and then the therapist go in and then the therapist come back and tell everybody what happened. We're all on the phone listening to that. Um, it also increased our patient volume. So we're now able to see eight patients in a day because we can see eight patients in an eight hour workday. I think one of the biggest impacts that this has had is outreach. Since April, when we have been doing this, we've talked with patients in Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, Idaho, all of these patients that otherwise would not have probably come back to have a single appointment in Rochester following their ICU stay. And so we have been able to take care of a larger number of patients. The other thing is, is this, this has a great uh, potential from an enterprise perspective in that there's no reason why we can't take care of patients that have been in a Florida ICU or an ICU in Mankato because we're virtual. We can we have shared medical records. We can reach out to this patient that's in Jacksonville. One of the things, though, that is a little bit tricky is billing from a licensing perspective. So right now, everybody has been given a blessing from a CMS standpoint, but we'll have to see how that evolves as the COVID situation evolves and our ability to continue this practice. And so here I mentioned that individualized care plan in terms of what it is that that entails. And so really what it is, is we're trying to navigate those gaps in care, those unrecognized things that the patient wasn't getting when they were just seeing their PCP or when they were having minimal outpatient follow-up. So as part of our visit, a lot of what we do is screening. So we're screening patients for anxiety, depression, and PTSD. We're screening them for functional issues so that then we can refer them to appropriate therapy services, refer them to, um, if you're in the Mayo Health System, to our integrated behavioral health colleagues so that they can receive the mental health resources that they need. And then also address whatever ongoing issues they're having with their um, current comorbidities. So if they came to the ICU and had ARDS as pulmonary providers, we're able to connect them with PFTs or pulmonary rehab or things that they need from that perspective. 
we can address advanced care planning, so whether or not a patient wants to come back to the ICU and what their wishes would be in that state. And then return to work. One of the really neat things that Mayo offers is uh, our occupational medicine colleagues are able to help patients create plans in getting back to work on a graded basis. And then, of course, I've bolded and underlined and italicized the pharmacist assessment because that's what's um, important from my perspective. As I had alluded to previously, um, ICU pharmacists in these post-ICU follow-up clinics, it's not unique to Mayo Clinic. They exist throughout the U.S. in other clinics that exist. And one of the published pieces of literature was um, actually published by Joanna Stallings out of Vanderbilt, was a prospective observational cohort study of adult patients that came to her clinic. She, at this point in time, had a snapshot of 56 patients where she identified a medium pharmacist intervention per patient of four. All patients had at least one pharmacist-based intervention to carry out, and she identified adverse drug events in nine out of the 56 patients that she saw. So the things that I'm focusing on during my visit are, so first of all, patient reported problems. The first thing that I ask is, are you having problems with your medication, or is there something that I can help you with today from a medication perspective? But then I'm also addressing those transitions of care pieces, and I look thoroughly at what they were on when they came into the ICU and then what they were on when they were dismissed from the hospital to identify whether or not held medications need to be resumed, whether or not we need to make dose adjustments based off of their current renal function if they had an AKI and have since recovered. And then the, one of the biggest things I've been surprised about is immunizations. So, so patients aren't being offered influenza, well, they might be offered and not acted upon or just not discussed at all, influenza, zoster, and pneumococcal vaccine. At Mayo, we also have a nicotine dependence center. So if a patient is actively smoking or using some type of tobacco product, we can refer them to that center and get them connected with services if they're interested. The second tier of the program is our remote patient monitoring piece. And so what this is, is a patient is at their home following ICU hospitalization. They're sent a tablet, a scale, blood pressure cuff, and pulse ox, and they have daily activities. So they're asked every day to complete vitals and then answer a set of questions. And nursing staff that exists remotely reviews their answers and reaches out if there are concerning vitals or concerning answers based off of the symptoms that they're experiencing. So they'll talk with the patient and then potentially triage um, the patient to the ED if they need ED type services or let our MCIRP team know if there are things that we can do from that perspective. So because this is a more intensive program and not all patients need vital monitoring following hospitalization, we tried to reserve this to patients that had that healthier dose of the ICU. So ECMO patients, patients that were mechanically ventilated for more than five days. And then we are a specific piece of the COVID-19 follow-up program. So anybody who is in the ICU with COVID-19 is dismissed on our remote patient monitoring program that they participate in for 30 to 90 days and then end up having a clinic visit at two to four weeks following hospital discharge. And so here is a picture of kind of the kit that the patient is sent, and there are very clear instructions for how the patient sets up the equipment and how they take their vitals.
And then the final piece of our program is the interactive care plan. And this is the one that I really do think is the future of how we do outpatient medicine at Mayo. It, it's app-based care and we all love our apps. Um, I would equate this uh, to, to, from a weight loss perspective, MyFitnessPal. It's similar to that, but relating to our active health issues. And so you can create to-do lists for a patient. So reminders for them to get up and be active. You can push them education. So this is a big thing from the post-ICU syndrome perspective. And then we, um, they can also receive questionnaires that are then fed back via in-basket messaging to our team. Um, so in this program, there isn't nursing support involved. Instead, for concerning responses, our team receives in-basket messages and then can directly reach out to the patient. From an enrollment perspective, this is the same as the clinic pathway, but the participation is a similar duration. And currently we see all of these patients in clinic, although a big thing for us in the future will be to engage a broader network of patients and not necessarily see all of these patients, um, but instead use this as a platform for education in those less severe patients. The goal of our clinic and really all of these clinics is to improve patient outcomes, right? And so we want to look at healthcare utilization, a patient's function, the process measures, the things that we're doing, as well as a balance of cost. So we um, to have three providers on an hour-long phone call is not cheap, right? And so you want to justify the, the things that you are doing and hope that you are ultimately reducing ICU and hospital readmission rates, you're reducing ER visits, you're helping patients return to work. So this is the, the goal of all of the things that we're doing, and these are things that we're currently in the process of measuring. As of now, year to date, we've seen about 100 patients. So we are doing pretty well from a recruitment standpoint, and now um, it's kind of time to put the, the money where our mouth is, I suppose, if you will. If I had to review what the last year has looked like, it can be well summarized in a paper that was published by a group of post-ICU clinic providers in critical care medicine in 2019. And what they did was they surveyed people to identify the enablers and barriers to implementing ICU follow-up clinics. And I think to a T, this is exactly the, the things that we have encountered in that we're a team that is passionate about providing this care of smart people. We're at a great institution. We have adapted well to the COVID-19 circumstances and done all of these great things. But like any institution, you know, with funding, it feels like we kind of live paycheck to paycheck and we have our innovation award currently and hopefully we'll receive permanent funding patient recruitment, so identifying appropriate patients, getting them scheduled for visits. Um, those are certainly things that we have struggled with and are still struggling with, um, but I feel confident that we'll be able to manage. And then what the future looks like for our clinic. So as I mentioned, improving patient identification, hopefully having a permanent post-ICU follow-up clinic structure, and then uh, playing a very significant role in the COVID-19 and pandemic trauma. We know we're going to see a lot of these patients over the next months and years. And I think that our post-ICU clinic is very well-placed to follow these patients. In terms of how you all can help that are listening, I think the biggest thing is awareness that this exists. And then um, as pharmacists, you are part of the care team. If there is a patient that is appropriate for a referral to our clinic, please send us an email, in-basket message, anything we would love um, to see these patients. So please let us know. So on to our questions here as we wrap up our presentation. Post-ICU syndrome is defined by new or worsened impairments in which of the following domains? A physical, 
B, cognitive, C, mental, or D, all of the above? Okay, with our current respondents, that's correct. 100% um, of you are right, um, D, all of the above. So impairments in uh, each of the three domains, um, you don't have to have all of them, but uh, suffering from at least one. True or false, delirium is associated with poor outcomes post-hospitalization, including increased risk of mortality. And so for those of you who answered true, you are correct. Delirium is associated with several poor outcomes um, post-hospitalization, new nursing home placement, functional decline, cognitive decline, as well as increased risk of mortality. And then finally, which of the following is a barrier to the establishment of post-ICU follow-up clinics? Um, so which of the following is a barrier? A, motivated clinicians, B, patient recruitment, C, too much free money, or D, established hospital infrastructure? So those of you who answered B are correct. Patient recruitment is a significant barrier in terms of identifying patients, get them scheduled, getting them scheduled for visits and into appointments is one of the bigger barriers. Oftentimes in these clinics, an asset is that you have patients who are motivated. Usually it's not too much money, it's not enough, as is always the problem in life. And then established hospital infrastructure is again an asset um, because you have resources that you can tap into for getting your clinic up and off the ground. So now at the conclusion of this presentation, I think we've addressed each of the aforementioned learning objectives in detail, and I hope that you can take away, number one, that post-ICU follow-up in these patients is essential, and uh, Mayo Clinic has a team of very motivated providers who are poised and ready to manage this, and if you have patients that are appropriate or that you think would be great for our clinic, always feel free to reach out. We would love um, to speak with you and visit these patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.